Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today's guest is Brian Miner. Brian Miner is a professional natural bodybuilder. He is also a competitive powerlifter, raw powerlifter, uh, and he's been a coach for a long time. He has a, a master's degree in exercise science from the Colorado State University, and he also has his CSCS and his NSCA. So he is a well-educated and a very well-experienced individual. This is somebody that I've really followed and, and consumed content from for a really long time in the natural bodybuilding community. Um, and why I brought him on today is to speak on something that he just really has a good grasp on, and that's how to progress as a natural lifter for hypertrophy. So we see a lot of discussion about periodization and progression for strength, right? A lot of, you know, linear approach, for example, it's just very easy, add weight, lower reps, uh, volume goes down, intensity goes up, rinse and repeat, eventually you will get stronger. Um, or we talked about the old, uh, I believe it's either Italian or Greek uh, myth, uh, mythology story where, you know, I think it's Milos carries the bull up the hill, uh, but he starts as a calf and every day the bull grows a little bit and gets a little bit older. And, and over 20 years, Milos gets very big and very strong because as the bull got bigger, he needed to adapt. And, uh, and we discussed that adaptation principle and the specificity principle within that progression and an adaptation. So I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast because we kind of go 18 different ways covering all kinds of topics from effort to intensity to volume to frequency to program design and how we like to do that personally for, for athletes versus gen pop, um, how long blocks and mesocycles should be. We touch a lot of really good and informative topics. So I really think you're going to enjoy this. You might want to grab a pen and paper because Brian goes deep into a lot of these questions. So uh, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a huge favor and head over to Instagram and post a screenshot of this on your story. You can find me at Cody.BoomBoom and you can find Brian at BDMinor and Minor is spelled M-I-N-O-R. So that's B-D-M-I-N-O-R. Tag us both in your story. We want to thank you for listening and we want to share it on our story as well. Without any further ado, let's get on to this powerful discussion with the one and only Brian Minor. All right, Brian Miner on the podcast today. I'm super excited to have you, man, because I have followed your stuff from afar for a long time. Um, you just mentioned Alberto before we started recording. Um, 3DMJ was one of the first guys I found on YouTube years ago when I first like became a coach and heard a lot of t uh, concepts. And then I was introduced to your content through Eric and Albert, and I've listened to a bunch of podcasts with you on it. So it's really, it's cool to have you on here, man. I'm excited to dive into this topic, but before we do dive into the topic of today, can you give the listeners an idea of who Brian is and maybe like how you got into fitness in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm excited to chat about this. Um, so I, I've been coaching full-time for about five years and then was, you know, coaching kind of on the side, um, 
for a few, three, four years before that. Um, but my, I went to school at Colorado State University um, and got my undergrad in construction management. So something totally unrelated to this. Um, and I've always been interested in, in training and, and nutrition, but um, yeah, I ended up doing construction management and then graduated right in the middle of the recession <laughs> and went back to school, um, went to grad school, like took some prerequisites and got into grad school for health and exercise. And uh, um, when I was done with that, you know, started, uh, actually went back and was working construction for a while as I sort of built up my business on the side um, while I did, you know, construction management and stuff. And then, yeah, in 2015, was able to transition over to this full time. So it's been it's been a journey to to get here, um, but it's been yeah, it's been fun. I've got it's a lot of my you know thoughts have just kind of evolved over time. There's you know aspects I think like any coach, you know, there's points of view that you have that you know change over time significantly, and and I think this is one of those topics that we're going to discuss. So. You, this is kind of like a just a selfish question. I'm just curious. Would you identify yourself more as a bodybuilder or a powerlifter? Because you've done both, correct? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't really identify myself as either. I, <laughs> um, I, I know what you're saying. I, I guess it's kind of like a 50-50 split, to be honest. Um, I think I'm probably a better bodybuilder than I am a powerlifter. I, you know, I've uh, competed in uh, two natural pro like seasons, um, you know, two different seasons, 2012, 2017. Um, and I actually earned my pro card in 2012, but like I've still only competed across three competitive seasons. So um, I think I've done seven shows total. So like, I don't have a ton of show experience, um, but you know, it, it's been, I, I guess I, I compete infrequently enough in it. And that's kind of the big reason that um, it's hard for me to really consider myself like a natural bodybuilder when I only, um, or like identify solely as that if I am only competing every half decade. You know? So yeah. it's a, uh, um, so I guess it just kind of depends on where I'm at. I, you know, right now I'm just in the off season trying to, um, you know, get, get bigger and stronger. And it's, you know, when it comes time to in the off season to do a meet, I just sort of dial up the specificity for, you know, eight to 12 weeks towards powerlifting and kind of go more or less like maintenance mode on some of the, the more bodybuilding, um, like isolation type stuff, like biceps and right. delts and calves. It's like those those are put on the back burner, um, just more for time than anything. Um, but you know the the focus. I think if there's anything that kind of gets sacrificed by doing both, it's just kind of the the opportunity cost of peaking for a meet. I mean that's time away from trying to grow and but as a natural athlete it's like in the grand scheme of things that's we're not talking much size that you're you know leaving yeah. on the table by doing that um so it, it's been yeah it, it's a good question i i get it a lot actually and I, i'm not sure 
you know, it, I'd say I prefer, I prefer the structure and the strategy behind powerlifting. Um, and I like the, the athletic element to it, the performance element to it. And I think, you know, some people would argue the same for bodybuilding, but, um, you know, the, all of the bodybuilding stuff is like, if you, if you do your work well in advance, I mean, that's, um, there's no really game day execution, you know, it's, I mean, there, there is, but not like there is in, in powerlifting. Um, I just, I like the performance element just growing up playing sports. So, and I don't know if this term is going to make you cringe or if you actually like it, but like power building is kind of like Mm -hmm. what we're talking about here in a way. Um, Do you think as a natural, it's actually better or worse to do that? And and the reason I say that is because, because it's so hard to build any type of muscle at all. Cause I'm, I'm in, I don't compete. I I have competed before, but um, I'm in my off season. Uh, I'm working coach just trying to get bigger too, but it's a very long and slow process of trying to get weight as natural. Do you think it's almost like because of that patience it requires and how slow it is and how specific you have to be, it's almost better to not split between the two because then you can actually squeeze out everything. Or you think it's such a small difference that it actually doesn't really matter. You're probably going to get the same gains long-term anyway. Does that make sense? Um, Yeah, no, that, that, that does make sense. And I think it depends on the individual I know for me like having that that competitive element it keeps it's like the the carrot that's in front of me at all times like I would get burned out with just going in and doing bodybuilding work um I think after a while the training would feel a little bit uninspired to be honest um so for me it it actually helps I think the 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 big picture cause for muscle growth because it keeps me engaged in the training um but from a purely like physiological muscle growth perspective you know i think a lot of people like the the saying you know jack of all trades is a master of none like it's it's true that you know the principle of specificity especially for for strength i mean that's something that needs to be uh you know, acknowledged if you're going to try to express strength to the highest degree, but, you know, hypertrophy isn't really a specific adaptation. Like it's, there's, um, I mean, it, it is an adaptation, but it's not like you can't train specifically for hypertrophy without training somewhat, at least like you could say hypertrophy is training like upstream strength potential you know it's in, it's increasing your capacity to produce force um, by building bigger muscle and so so like i think in powerlifters we know it you know the exp- as you gain experience the most predictive variable for strength in experienced lifters is going to be muscle mass and so um you know it, it is the one thing that we have control over for like over the long term like yes muscle mass slows down does it ever completely stop probably not you know if we're doing everything right um it could you know be very slow but there's a lot of lifters i think that are so focused on the specificity side of powerlifting and not wanting to you know cross this imaginary line and focus on you know, quote unquote bodybuilding, but they end up 
in the process sort of sabotaging their long-term potential for strength. And so a lot of, uh, and you see this a lot now, I think more people are starting to, um, like I would say more power lifters see the benefits. Like I, I don't think you would get the same argument from power lifters that you can't do both as you would from bodybuilders. Like I think bodybuilders um, look at it in, from a different perspective, whereas um, power, power lifters that you know understand what goes into expressing strength, they see bodybuilding as part of a bigger picture. Um, and hypertrophy helps with strength more than strength is going to help with hypertrophy. So, um, so the, the bodybuilding side of things helps with strength, but if I was purely just a power or a, uh, a bodybuilder, like, no, I, I wouldn't train, you know, my one rep max, I wouldn't do heavy, you know, doubles and triples, but at the end of the day, it's like, we know that hypertrophy is not, it's not intensity specific. Like we can still make those loads conducive to the overall theme of training. Like I could still have a training block that, you know, biases hypertrophy and, you know, training volume um, that includes some high intensity exposure. So it's not like if, if I took a, a bodybuilding program, like a, a great, you know, hypertrophy emphasized program and added, you know, some conservative singles or doubles, you know, top sets preceding some of the volume work, like it's not all of a sudden going to just, you know, soak up all of these recovery demands by doing, you know, a few additional reps per week. You know, it's, it's, um, I think the biggest issue is for, for managing both is time. And I think it's, um, connective tissue integrity, because we know that like you can, you can grow using heavy loads. You can grow using light loads. Um, and on a set by set basis, you know, we know roughly anywhere from six to 30 reps, you know, we can kind of count things on a set to set basis. So like three sets of, you know, eight versus three sets of 15, you know, those are going to have similar hypertrophic effects. Um, so when you look at it from that perspective, you can see how the strength training side of things, it, it can still build muscle. Those high intensities can still build muscle. You just have to dose it strategically so you're, you're not getting hurt. Um, you know, managing the, the, the wear and tear that it has a tendency to, to put on people. Um, if you're getting all of your volume from high intensities like that, you're going to hit a wall pretty quick, but you're still, you're still going to grow from it, you know? Um, so at the end of the day, I think you're where it's kind of tricky. And, um, I think where there's some misconceptions is, you know, that high intensity strength training isn't going to benefit hypertrophy at all. And it still can, um, it just needs to be dosed appropriately or that, you know, high volume training, you know, that's more submaximal serves no purpose for strength. And it, it so mass, it's just not like the, uh, like you wouldn't want to do it during a peaking phase. And so, you know, I think, 
if if you're spending you know eight to twelve weeks peaking for a meet, like yeah, it's it's time away from, I guess, growing. If if you just sort of assume the goal there is to you know, actualize your, your strength potential, you know, through neurological and skill acquisition, um, you know, avenues, the, the hypertrophy side of things, you're, you're more or less maintaining muscle mass. When you bring down volume to start to bring down fatigue, you know, you're, you're focusing more on muscle maintenance. And so as a bodybuilder, you can look at that and think like, this is very counterproductive and perhaps, um, but it also could, you know, one, if there is something to, you know, resensitization in terms of volume, which, you know, there, there is some, some evidence that there could be, um, you know, going, stepping away or dialing back from volume, there's like an enhanced, um, enhanced response. Once you do return to it, they have, there's research that looks at groups that, um, trained all, I forget what the duration was, but they trained one group, I think trained 16 weeks straight and the other group, um, I think after, like they took two week breaks every, like every so many weeks. And they actually, at the end of the study had similar amounts of muscle growth. And so we're talking like total, you know, detraining, um, and stepping out of the gym. But when they come back in, they see, you know, they're, they're obviously seeing an accelerated rate when they come back into the gym, if they end with the same amount of muscle as the other group. And so, um, you know, I think an argument could be made that, you know, these peaking phases could, in a sense, resensitize you to, to volume for, you know, subsequent hypertrophy, um, hypertrophy phases. Um, but I think, I think people in both camps or both sports, we like to look at things strictly on, you know, what's physiologically optimal and not enough attention is given to, you know, what is going to keep us engaged in the training and putting effort into the training. And I think that's, that's a big one for me um, is, you know, wanting getting that, that change of pace, change of, you know, short-term goal. You're not sabotaging your other goal. You're just kind of putting things on hold. Um, and then, you know, the, the amount of muscle that, let's say there's no resensitization element to it. The amount of muscle mass you're losing out on by, you know, a eight to 12 week peaking phase is, is going to be relatively minimal for an advanced athlete, you know? So, um, and for like an intermediate athlete, you know, or a beginner, you might not need to have like a traditional peaking phase where you radically pull back on volume. Like you can sort of have a peaking phase where, um, you know, you're, you're still above, you know, what you could consider like MEV for, um, for hypertrophy, but you're, you're pushing higher intensities, you know, you're getting that volume from higher intensities and the, the fatigue management side isn't as big of a concern because you're, you're not lifting, you know, quite, you're not as advanced of an athlete. Like each unit of work is just a little bit less taxing. So, um, so sometimes in those cases, it, it's not a radical change, you know, it's, it's implementing some um, high intensity top sets, you know, two, three times a week and getting people familiar with lifting heavy loads and, and going from there. So I, I think there's, 
you know, there's a lot of people that are adamant that it's very suboptimal. And I just, I don't think that's the case. Um, when you look, when you consider everything, I mean, I wouldn't have a power lifter train, you know, medial, if they're, you know, like a Bryce Lewis that we were just talking about, you know, I, I wouldn't, if I were, you know, his coach, um, you know, Eric Helms, and he may include some of this, you know, just for, for fun, but like, there's really no reason I would program like medial delts or, or chest flies, you know, unless like there was like clearly a developmental issue, you know, like say his, his pecs just had a hard time growing and like we needed some low stress, um, you know, low fatigue stimulus there. But, um, you know, for, for somebody that's like at a high level of powerlifting, you wouldn't include those movements, but even if you do include those, it's not that much additional training stress, you know, like your, your overall systemic fatigue isn't going to go up that much more by doing a few sets of, of bicep curls and, and lateral raises, you know, and some calves. Um, and I, I kind of look at, you know, the, the power building approach is, you know, we're still focusing on hypertrophy, but as we approach the meet, we're dialing up specificity. It's like the competition lifts can become more of our, our vehicle for accruing the training volume that we are getting. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's minimal amounts of time where you're, I think, leaving gains on the table ultimately. And I know that was kind of a disorganized rant <laughs> but it's uh no. yeah i don't i don't think it's as big of a deal as people make it out to be um i don't think it's required to optimize like i don't think it's optimal but i don't think it's grossly suboptimal either i think you actually brought up a lot of really good points like one being just adherence and motivation to train like i think that's something a lot of people forget about and i talk about quite often and it's funny because um Eric Trexler writes all my programming and everything. And, and it's really cool. Cause we kind of have like a co-active relationship. He kind of like lets me discuss it with him. And after 16 weeks of not dipping below eight reps, not because, yeah. and I think this is a good point you kind of made too. And in, in a way it's not that eight to 12 rep range is best for hypertrophy. It's just, okay, what's the most productive use of your time for the main goal, which is hypertrophy, you know, mm -hmm. it's probably going to be staying up in that range, which is yeah. funny because studies came out and it's like, you can do any rep range, but you should mm -hmm. still do the eight to 15 rep range kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's but, efficient. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, it, but after 16 weeks, I was like, man, I need some threes and fives. Like I'm just mm -hmm. I'm dying. So we added, you know, bench squat and deadlift, right? Fives and threes. Like, let me just lift some heavy weights. It's not really going to negatively impact much, but it just gave me like motivation to train because it's like, how much can I squat today? Like oh, it's squat mm -hmm. day, it's bench day. And, and that feels good rather than doing eight reps on a barbell bench press eight reps on a yeah. squat you know um so i think that's really important but I, I am curious of your thoughts on kind of the relationship between um intensity and volume there's kind of like these two camps right like there's the volume camp obviously um and i think there's a lot of evidence to prove that and then there's this intensity camp that's more like a dorian yates style approach where maybe they're not doing much volume but they're training balls to the wall with intensity and effort um, and there's not much, there's not many studies doing that kind of stuff. It's more bro science, but the guys are jacked. So it's like, it's mm -hmm. kind of like one of those things where, um, people are kind of choosing sides. Do you think there is a balance? Like, how do you even balance those two? Um, yeah, that's, it's a good question. I, 
oh, I'm trying to think of the best way to dive into this because there's a lot of different directions mm-hmm. though. But I, I think both methods will work. Um, at the end of the day, it's like if you're if you're doing adequate volume and you're working hard in the gym there's going to likely be some muscle growth that's following suit, you know? Um, So even the people that are pushing high intensities, like they're, they're accruing enough volume to grow. And so it's not that volume isn't important. Um, It's, you know, I guess when we look at volume, we have to first define, you know, what that is. And, in research, it's often looked at as, you know, sets times reps times load or like volume load tonnage, um, it's sometimes called. And so that's sort of like a proxy for, it's a proxy for internal stress. Um, and, you know, the, the load on the bar and the weight we lift, it's, it's just a means to an end to get us to an imposed stress on the physiological level, you know, that causes a um, you know, biochemical cascade of events, you know, for muscle protein synthesis. And so I think sometimes we get caught up in like mathematical levels of volume and we have to realize, um, that, you know, high intensity work, like, yeah, it might be one set, but you're also getting, it's, it's a set that's dosed very aggressively, you know, um, and so your your level of effort there, you're going to get more overall tension on, you know, the, the high threshold muscle fibers that have, you know, the greatest propensity for growth. Um, so I think on like a set to set basis, and this, this kind of goes into the conversation of, you know, training close to failure. And this is... Um, this is a topic that's currently getting like a a decent amount of attention. Um, And I know Greg Knuckles recently wrote an article on, on um, his website looking at, um, or, you know, showed that um, trained lifters can get away training a little bit further from failure than, you know, um, novice trainees. And, and that's something I think that lines up with, with anecdote as well. Um, But, you know, we know that, volume is you know or each set it's it's a vehicle for the magnitude of tension and a duration of exposure to that tension and so like you can look at like the effective reps concept and i'm not sure if you're familiar with that or not but like um you know, there, there's definitely flaws to this model. And Greg has a great article on that as well. Um, but the, the basic premise is, um, you know, the, the reps that are going to contribute to growth the most are the ones that are under, you know, full degrees of, of motor unit recruitment. Um, and I don't think many people would argue that, you know, to, to grow a muscle optimally anywhere to you know, for a muscle fiber to hypertrophy, it's got to be activated. You know, it's got to be actually having, um, you know, creating or generating force to have tension put on it. Um, And so 
I think where the discrepancy there comes into play is where where does that happen in a set and for a given exercise, you know, for squats, you know, how far from failure do you start, you know, calling into action these higher threshold muscle fibers? Um, and it's, it's likely lower than most people think. Um, and, you know, the, sometimes like the, I know, uh, Chris Beardsley has mentioned, um, you know, five reps in reserve, you know, anything there and below is sort of like the active um, or the basically the effective reps. I don't think he calls them, I think you might call them hypertrophy reps or, or something, but um, you know, th those are the reps that are going to have the biggest bang for your buck basically. And it makes sense, you know, at least on some scale that, you know, as you, fatigue in a set, you call in higher threshold muscle fibers, you're going to start um, generating force with those, putting tension on them. And, you know, that's what's going to lead to hypertrophy. Whereas, you know, just doing lots of mathematical volume that is very submaximal, you could end up with very little magnitude and duration of exposure to tension on those those higher threshold fibers and so there's a level of requisite effort that's required in order to optimize muscle growth um, you know training to failure is i don't i don't think is necessary i don't i, I think the data is is pretty clear that that's not necessary and you know in trained athletes um you know i think it's likely suboptimal in many cases. Um, and I, I kind of have mixed opinions of this. Like some of this kind of goes into uh, like the fatigue management side of things. I think sometimes we look at things from a perspective of how do we optimize the stimulus when we have to think of it is how do we optimize the balance between the stimulus and our ability to recover from it so we can turn around and apply it again. And, you know, training to failure, even if that was the, the, you know, the, the best way to, you know, leave no doubt that, uh, you know, adequate stimulus was applied. It's also, you know, exponentially more fatiguing. Um, you know, it, like if you even training like a couple reps in reserve, like from that to zero reps in reserve, if you're going to do a set, like say you did a set with two RAR and then did another set with the same load, you know, five minutes later, um, or we'll say two minutes later, you're going to perform better with significantly better with that than if you would have gone to failure on that first set, you know? So, um, that, that fatigue rises significantly, um, when you start training to true, you know, failure and there's like mechanical failure. And then there's like, you know, true, like, grind through Dorian Yates style failure. And, and I don't think there's, I personally don't think there's any reason to do that. Um, because I think that's when you start running into issues, you know, with high amounts of, you know, potentially high amounts of muscle damage, which are then going to, you know, impact your performance in subsequent sessions. And so I think a lot of people in the high intensity camp sort of ignore the residual effects of applying a very 
assertive stimulus like that. And I think people that are in the, the high volume camp at times disregard the importance of putting in adequate effort. And that doesn't mean training to failure. It, it just means training close enough to failure to make sure that you're at least putting tension where you want it, you know, that right. you're, you're forcing, you know, the fibers that have the, the greatest growth potential that they're being forced to, to do some work. And so, um, so both are important. I, it's not one versus the other, like they, they both um, are important. And, you know, the, the way we're kind of referring to intensity here is like relative effort, you know, mm -hmm. proximity to failure, whereas, you know, we can talk about load on the bar and we kind of alluded to that in the last question, you know, we, we don't have any evidence to really indicate that, you know, heavier loads are more beneficial to, to lighter loads when it comes to hypertrophy, you know, as long as it's over like 30%. Yeah. Um, so, so I think when we're looking at effort per set, it's gotta be adequate, does not need to be to failure. Um, and, you know, being able to train a little bit short of failure you're then able to do, you know, turn around on your next set, perform a little bit better. Um, and at the end of the day, like your, your bottom line stimulus may be greater and you may have better, you know, with less cost associated with it in terms of fatigue. That's do, you, do you think that, um, I mean, two follow-up questions on that. Number one, do you think that going to failure I don't want to say it's better for beginners because sometimes that's more dangerous because they don't have skill, but also mm -hmm. I, I feel like a lot of people say, Oh, that's two RIR. And I'm like, you're not even close to failure because they don't understand yeah. what that is. Um, and I almost think like the, the maximal effort failure training that I did as like I was programming incorrectly <laughs> actually taught mm -hmm. me a lot on how to do it better today. Yeah. Um, and then almost too like kind of summarizing what you said, and you can correct me if, if you think this is right, but like, hypertrophy is going to occur from tension being applied to the muscle fiber, right? So volume, intensity, different training splits, all these things, it's kind of like, well, really what's, it's almost like calories, right? What's the best avenue to create the right amount of tension for you, right? If that's intensity, mm -hmm. great. If that's volume, great. Just like calories, like, oh, intermittent fasting, cool. Calorie deficit. Keto, cool. Calorie deficit. Like it, yeah. you know, it kind of always stems back to that. Would that be true? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a combination of both though. And, um, you know, I think some people just bias one. I wouldn't really even say, I mean, they're, they're both required. Yeah. Like you need to have adequate intensity. You need to have adequate volume, but there's a lot of people that prefer, like when we, if we're considering volume number of sets, I think if we were to sort of distill the argument down, there's people that argue fewer sets of absolute maximum effort versus more sets with slightly less than maximum effort. Um, and yeah, in that case, I think it's, you know, like some of it comes down to, we talked about the, the, psych, the psychological side of things like enjoyment. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's people that just really enjoy going in, like, you know, they watch that Dorian Yates blood and guts video <laughs> before yeah. they go in and train, it's like, <laughs> you know, leaving reps in reserve isn't, um, it, it sounds, you know, like they're committing a crime. And so, um, so I think, 
yeah, I, I agree. I think it's there. There's lots of ways to get to it, especially with hypertrophy. Um, and like, this is sort of along the topic of progressive overload, but I think a lot of people that just go into the gym and they have no structure, like a lot of those guys are still pretty jacked and it's, it's because they're still checking the boxes that they need to check. Um, like they're still going in, they're putting effort in, they're doing adequate amounts of volume and they're, they're getting a stimulus because of it, you know? Um, and if they're training close to failure, it's like, as they adapt, they're still, you know, they're, they're still keeping pace with those adaptations because they're training to failure. Um, and so it's built in, um, you know, if you're training to failure every session, it, it, the one nice thing about it is it is a diagnostic tool to tell you if you are progressing, um, because that number should go up over time. Yeah. And so, you know, that, those people that are just going in and, you know, that are having the conversation with their training buddy, like in the parking lot, you know, what, what body part are we going to hit today? Or, you know, what, yeah. what, you know, what exercise do you want to do next? Um, like that they're still, they're still achieving the most important factor and that's putting tension, you know, adequate amounts of tension where they need it. Um, and so, and then as they get stronger, since they're training to failure anyway, or close to failure, they end up just doing more reps in the process or, you know, increasing weight and doing similar amounts of reps. And so, you know, that, that is one nice thing about training to failure is it forces people to have a progression format in place, even though it doesn't sound like it is a progression format, because as they as adaptations occur, they're right there keeping pace with them by, you know, staying at this, wherever that ceiling is, they're pushing up to it every single session. So, um, you know, is it, is that ceiling raises, they're right there pushing up to it again. And so, um, so I think there's benefits there. And you had mentioned, I think in the research, um, you know, they, they don't really train like blood and guts style. And I, I agree. I think there's, um, they do often train to failure though, but you have to look at the population. Like you said, you know, two reps in reserve is this true failure. And, and I think, I'm sure it depends on the study. I mean, I've never conducted resistance training research. Um, so I don't know, like I've never really witnessed one of these studies take place in front of me. And so seeing, you know, a, someone who's resistance trained at least six months, you know, that can squat one and a half times their body weight, you know, see, seeing them trained to failure on a set of squats. It's like, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in the lab, you know? And yeah. So um, versus someone with high amounts of experience. But what I can say is if, if we have evidence that you don't need to train to absolute failure, to, you know, and let's say on average, even, you know, trained in the research is generally not like super advanced, you know, it's usually, you know, I, I think most would agree that it's like late novice intermediate type lifters, you know, that are kind of considered trained in the research, you know, sometimes 
getting people that have been training at least a year, you know, that's considered trained, you know, training three times a week for at least a year. Like that's not uncommon to see. Um, but if we see them is benefiting or getting adequate or similar progress training a little bit shy of failure, then like people will, will critique it like, well, this was done in novices. Well, if anything, this, this supports the fact that advanced athletes would benefit from it as well, you know, because they're actually pushing to failure. And so if, if a novice is, you know, stopping at, you know, about five RIR and, or, you know, three to five RIR and getting, you know, similar progress when in reality, maybe they're actually like eight RIR, <laughs> then, yeah. um, you know, it, it makes you think like in this case, like that argument of it wasn't in advanced trainees is, I don't say it's in, it's not invalid because like science is based off of, you know, the population that you're studying and the interpretation. But, um, but I think mechanistically, there's no reason why advanced athletes wouldn't benefit from it as much or more because they're, they're carrying more stress per set, like in terms of like acute fatigue as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, that's something people forget too, is like, I think the more advanced you are, the more systemically fatiguing it is to go closer to failure. So two RIR mm -hmm. to me training eight to nine years is different than somebody two RIR uh, training for a year or two, not only from a standpoint of maybe not from a muscle growth perspective, but from a fatigue standpoint, hundred percent, exactly. you know, because yeah. I have a more of a skill I like to think. Um, mm -hmm. and I think like as somebody who's trained for eight or nine years, I, I think I thought I was like advanced lifter at three years. And then I hit like five years and I was like, man, I'm still an intermediate. Like the more that I learned, I was like, no, yeah. I'm, I'm not really there yet. But, um, you mentioned progression, like really quick. And I really want to, like, that was the original topic we were going to dive into. Um, so I want to kind of shift gears into that in, in my first question. Uh, and then you can kind of tell us what your, your theory or your, your way of doing it is, is one, how did that even start? Like, how did you like, be almost known for understanding progression for hypertrophy so well, because I've heard you speak on it. It's like people have sought you out to speak on that exact topic. Um, so I'm curious how that came about. And then also like what your method is. I mean, obviously there's, you know, we can add load, um, we can add reps. And then there's also people who like to add sets over the course of weeks. Um, does it matter? Or do you have a certain thing that you think works best? Um, yeah. You know, I, a lot of the overload stuff for one, I want to make it clear. It's I, it kind of like makes me cringe a little bit when people, they think of me just as like the, the, open, the guy that talks about overload. It's like, right. I get asked to talk about it a lot. Um, and it's, I think it, it has, if there's going to be one, you know, a topic to discuss a lot, that's grossly misunderstood as a whole. I think like, I, I like talking about it because I think it has implications that spread out, you know, the entire way we structure our training. Um, but it, it kind of, you know, the, it's not anything I discovered by any means. I mean, I know, um, I mean, I, I forget 
when I first sort of the seed was planted in my head, like, you know, the idea of, of overload, um, I was always sort of told like the, the story of, um, a lot of people are exposed to this, how they're introduced to the idea of overload, like Milo of, of Croton, the, you know, the Greek wrestler and the, the bull. And like, you hear that story, like, yeah, that makes sense. Like he adapts, um, you know, he's forced to get stronger as the bull gets larger. And that's sort of the, the takeaway is you apply, if the, if the force is there or if the demand is there and you expose yourself to it, now you need to, like, that is a, a, a stressor that your body is not ready for and is a defense mechanism. You know, we get stronger to be able to, to cope with that. Um, and there's, there's elements of that that are, that are true, but I think where it gets lost um, is people think that they kind of get it backwards a little bit. And it is sort of a chicken and the egg scenario where, you know, we do need to add load or we do need to progress in order to keep adapting. Like we do, otherwise we would, you know, just stagnate, you know, and, and stall. But what a lot of people kind of forget or don't understand is that what we do in the gym or like overload, I mean, the, the term overload, I like to define it as it's simply achieving a stimulus that's adequate for an adaptation to occur. And that is not predicated on what you just did. So, and I think sometimes that's where people get lost with overload is they think, okay, I, I did this last time or last week. Now I need to do more. Now I need to push myself a little bit further and that's true but it's it's on a much longer scale um and so you know there's there's nothing wrong necessarily well there's there's pros and cons i should say but there's there's nothing just straight up wrong with plans that add things session to session i think from a psychological perspective it, it can be helpful um and from a like a stress perspective, you know, an applied stress perspective, it can be beneficial as well. But what progressive overload ultimately is, is it's keeping pace with adaptations. And so we know there's like a range of effective volumes, you know, there's like the, the minimum effective, um, you know, in the, in the maximum, like this inverted U um, that, you know, we within that will see positive muscle growth from. So, if we're, if we apply a stimulus and we adapt to it, what that does is it increases, those adaptations sort of increase our ceiling. So say we're doing 10 reps at a two RAR, the first session, once we adapt, maybe we can do 11 reps at a two RAR, you know? And so it, it keeps, it pushes that up a little bit. And we, we want, in order to continue to get apply a you know similar like relative stimulus we need to keep pace with those adaptations and so like this is where i think the effective reps model can be like you a useful teaching tool 
because let's say it's the last five reps before failure. Let's let's pretend that's all that matters. And um, like that, that's where I, I don't think, um, and I, I guess I don't know his position on it right now, but Chris Beardsley has, has received, you know, the, the idea of the last five reps has received some critique um, with it, you know, not being a line in the sand, like the last five reps are the only reps that matter. Um, but let, let's pretend for a second they do. And I, I, I like his model, for, especially for teaching purposes. But um, if it's the last five reps, say you do a set of 10 to two RAR. So you leave, uh, you have three reps uh, that are effective, you know. Then let's say you, um, if you were to do 10 reps, but now it's a three RAR, because you've adapted and it's now easier, you've only done two effective reps. And so it, like you could still, you could not change anything as long as you're performing adequate volume and you're, you know, if you're within that acceptable volume range and you're applying enough stimulus to these high threshold fibers or just, you know, muscle fiber in general, you're going to grow. Um, so you could, in theory, not change anything. You could do three sets of 10 with the same load for a straight, you know, for a month straight potentially, and still see forward progress, still see small amounts of muscle growth following every single one of those sessions. It's just, as you, like when you first start out, it's going to push that ceiling a little bit higher and now you're you have less effective stimulus and then it's going to push a little higher and you have less effective stimulus and then it's going to push a little higher and then you have even less and so as you adapt we need to keep pace with that new like as our fitness goes up we need to keep the the stimulus at a place that's that's going to continue to impose you know, reasonable amounts of overload. And so that's like, it's, it's our own adaptations that are dictating our, our progression within our, um, you know, the, the rate that we're adapting is dictating how much we can, can add to the bar, how many reps we can do. Um, and it, it's nothing that our body isn't already capable of doing, you know, it's not like this imposed shock to our system that, our body is, you know, incapable of, of handling and we need to, um, you know, grow muscle in order to, to cope with this stressor. And I think that's sometimes how people conceptualize it. Um, it's, it's that we're, we've adapted and in order to continue to make the set difficult, we need to either do more reps or add load. Um, and if the set's not difficult, then we're not putting tension on the fibers that we want. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Do you have a, uh, like speaking of like actual programming this, do you have a way that you prefer to do it as far as like when to add reps versus when to add load? And, um, you didn't even mention adding sets week to week. And I think that's a fairly new idea that, um, more so Mike Isertel talks about quite a bit. Yeah. And I've always personally kind of not like that just because I feel like it's one it's hard and like as the weeks go on you feel like you're in the gym longer and longer but then you know there's people like Steve Hall who's a natural bodybuilder who is killing it and mm -hmm. I look at his physique and I'm like well man like 
maybe it is legit, you know? So, um, but again, I think that stems back to adherence. I wouldn't personally be able to be motivated to adhere to that. So I think that's the overarching thing, but when it comes to actual program design, do you have certain like places where you go with like, a, like load progressions versus rep progressions, or do you just stick with one per block? How, how do you like to design it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, that there's a difference in between adding load and adding reps versus adding sets. Um, and, and Eric Helms recently wrote like a great article for mass that about this. Um, and he and I, and, um, Jacob Skepis with JPS, um, recently wrote, um, a reply to, um, the, the original like mesocycle progression article that, that Mike put out, um, with some of our additional thoughts on it and, um, critiques. And like, once it's published, you know, people can read that, but, um, like adding sets isn't an indication that progress has been made. It's an indication that you've decided to do one more set, you know? And, and so adding load and adding reps, when we talk about increasing the stimulus to keep pace with adaptations that are occurring, like, yeah, you could look at adding sets as like your work capacity has gone up. Now you can add a set. You could look at it from that perspective. But um, ultimately, it, as you get stronger and build muscle on a set to set basis, either adding load or adding reps is going to continue to put tension on the high threshold muscle fibers, you know. Um, and so those, those are the two primary avenues, like on an acute basis that, that I work with And like, rather than, um, like I, I use sort of a, just a auto-regulated form of double progression a lot of the time. And so rarely do I have like a completely static model where I say, you know, like traditional double progression, it might say three sets of eight this week, three sets of nine next week, three sets of 10. Now that increased five pounds, three sets of eight, you know, and, three, and, and so there, there's nothing like that will work. Um, but it's, I think an argument could be made that it's, it could be very suboptimal for somebody who's adapting very well. Um, like you take a beginner who is seeing, you know, reasonable degrees of adaptation between sessions, you know, you might be able to take a beginner and, you know, week one, there, you know, you could add five pounds to a lift from, you know, one session to the next and the, the weight move the exact same, you know, like that's an indication of actual progress. Um, and so like keeping pace with the, with the adaptations requires like somewhat of an auto-regulated approach. And so what I'll do is, um, like a double progression model, but I'll say three sets of eight to 12, for example, maintaining like two RAR. And so person will fall somewhere in that range. You know, they'll pick a load that, you know, the first week that'll put them somewhere in that range. And then, um, 
you know, they'll, they'll go through their sets. And if they feel like, like say the first set, they get 10 reps, the next set, they get eight reps. And then the third set, they realize if I keep the load the same, I'm not going to get this. And so they might lower the weight for that third set in order to stay in that rep range. So it's, it's adjusting the load to stay in like a loading zone. Um, but then anytime, like the next week, anytime like the week prior that you hit the top end of the rep range, I'll have people increase the weight um, for, for that set. And so um, what it does is, is it, it the, the load increases are based off of a performance, which falls in line with the theme of, you know, a stimulus is based off the rate of adaptation, you know? And so as we perform better and we show that, okay, now we need to increase the load in order to stay within this loading zone, then we increase the loading. And sometimes like if you were to like take someone who's like a beginner who's adapting very quickly, they may say they get, you know, on the first set, 100 pounds for 12 reps at two RIR. Then the next week they go 105 pounds, but they actually get 12 reps again at two RIR. Like they're adapting very quickly. And so if we were using a static model, you know, we may end up having them do 100 pounds for, or like 105 pounds for eight reps rather than going up to 12 already. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's allowing them to, based off of their readiness on the day, um, you know, the fitness and fatigue dynamic there, but also their, um, you know, their, I guess, adaptation is wrapped into the fitness element. So um, based off of their readiness, it's, it's allowing them to, to push the stimulus um, when they're able to push it. And if they don't have, you know, say they have high fatigue or they're not adapting well, the rate of progression in the, the stimulus is a lot slower. And so, um, so I, I like that tool a lot. I mean, and it's one of a number of like reactive training strategies that are out there. Um, and actually we have a quick plug here, um, JPS and um, I, know, I forget his last name, Melvin. Um, there, anyway, there's this hypertrophy online hypertrophy summit this next month. Um, it's really cheap. It's like forty dollars American for yeah, I'm like, it. <laughs> hours of yeah. But I'm presenting on uh, reactive progression strategies, and so um, so if people are interested in kind of learning some of the other ways, that that would be something good to sign up for. Um, there's but, a lot of good speakers on that panel. Yeah. Yeah. It should be cool. Um, but anyway, the, um, the whole point is what we, the optimal stimulus for a given day isn't necessarily influenced. It's not influenced at all on what we just did or what we did immediately prior or a week prior it's dictated by our readiness for the day and the magnitude of adaptations up to that point. Um, and, you know, if, if we're progressing and adapting well and recovering well, I mean, it's, it's auto-regulation basically, you know, it's, it's 
it's respecting variances in each individual's ability to to recover and adapt or you know lack of ability to to do that at an optimal rate so um so yeah that's kind of the, the i don't have a preferred way but if there's going to be like i like to start with reps oftentimes because like that's the smallest unit of increase that you can have and like you're you're going to be able to increase reps at a given load keeping all else equal before you're going to be able to increase load keeping all equal um and so at least in i would think in pretty much all the cases so um and we, we talked about like adding sets and i had said you know adding sets is really just it's a means of increasing the stimulus, but it's not really based off of necessarily based off of rate of adaptation, especially if you're doing it in a proactive manner. Mm -hmm. um, like, yeah, work capacity as it increases, but there's really no way to assess on the fly where your work capacity is in terms of, you know, recovery, you know, recuperative ability um, on a session to session basis. But um, like adding load statically is sort of the similar to to adding sets um because if you just add load like if if i did uh 100 pounds at four rir or say 100 pounds for four reps at four rir and then the next session i did 105 pounds for three reps at five RIR that's like I did more weight but I didn't it's it's not a better performance you know it, it just shows that I added weight and so that's not that's not a progression in the stimulus at all um it just shows that I decided to add load and you know either no significant adaptation has occurred or you know fatigue could be masking that um, at that moment in time and so um you know, I like I like it when the the progression of the stimulus can also serve as a diagnostic tool over time into the you know effectiveness of the current strategy. Like if we know across a block, if we know if we see performance trending up for a lift, like say we use that auto-regulated double progression model, um, and you know we're using five more pounds for all our sets, you know keeping all else equal and you know by the end of the um end of the mesocycle you know throughout that we've been increasing reps each week you know here and there and it's been occurring organically like that that's likely a sign i mean it's strong evidence that you're heading in the right direction you know with yeah. in terms of like the stimulus is likely effective um and some people may say like, well, you know, fatigue can influence performance. And so how do you decipher that? And that's true. But across a training block, like fatigue is usually increasing. So if you're increasing performance in the face of, you know, in the presence of escalating fatigue, then like, if anything, fatigue is, is making it look less favorable than it actually is rather than looking, making it look more favorable. Um, so yeah, I, I like, um, 
there's a lot of different ways to do it, like power lifters. I do think there's something to be said for strength athletes being able to increase load every week in a plan. I think mentally it helps. I know for me at least, gradually having more, you know, weight on the bar, you know, holding more weight, um, you know, rather than just piling on, you know, all this weight at once, once you get stronger. Like I think having that gradual exposure to increasing loads is, is important from a comfort level. Um, but there's ways to do that still in an auto regulated manner. Like you could statically increase load every, you know, by five pounds every single week for a lift, but just take each set up to, you know, a certain RIR, like three RIR and just let, you know, reps naturally, you know, unless you're just adapting phenomenally and making some insane progress, but gradually, you know, just let reps sort of come down is, um, you know, as the load goes up. And so you're, you're still able to, you know, you can still assess the effectiveness of the strategy. If you use like, you know, you can estimate your max based off of a, you know, a performance for, you know, say your first set. Um, but I like using that sometimes too. And so th there's, there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, adding sets isn't my preferred way to do it. Um, and I think, I mean, that's, I'll hold off on really talking about that. Um, cause I, I know there's going to be more discussions about this in the future. Um, hopefully, you know, with Eric and myself and Mike, um, and Jacob, and I think, um, Jared Feather, hopefully. Um, so yeah, it's, it should be a good discussion. I think there's some some pros to to that model, but I also think there's some assumptions that um, that are made within that model as well um, that can uh, yeah may may make it a less optimal choice than maybe perhaps keeping sets the same or just you know, having a more reactive way to managing your volume. I, I think a lot of people get into the more is better thing and that's why they assume more sets might be good. Um, but it's, if it's not applying the right tension or the right stimulus that you want or the right stress, then it's, it's kind of just like you said, it's just time. You're just spending yeah. the time there. Um, but I like the double progression method a lot, actually. It's something similar to what I use in, in all, especially with um, a lateral raise, for example, like, mm. okay, 25 pound dumbbells, 10 to 12 reps. I might be only at three sets of 10 right now, but I'm going to stay here until I can get three sets of 12 with this 20 pound. And then maybe I'll bump up to 25 and go like eight to 10. Cause like we know, mm -hmm a five pound jump on a lateral raise is actually pretty damn big. Yeah. Um, but over time you're, you're making those small progressions with just reps. But I think the problem I see, we work with a lot of gen pop people. The problem I see with that with gen pop is just that you gotta be patient, <laughs> you know? And I think that sometimes people have trouble like being patient with their, their logbook and just, just kind of tracking progress over time. But I think, mm. you know, at the end of the day, that's what makes great bodybuilders great too is, they're patient as hell and they're willing to just, you know, do the work and track the progress slowly. Yeah. Um, one thing that you mentioned that I meant to circle back to in one of my tangents there was, uh, you, you had mentioned you were kind of glad early on that you, like it taught you a lot training close to failure. And, um, I agree with you. Like, I, I think it made me respect 
it made me respect the rate of progress um, that I had at a young age. And, you know, when I first got into it and because I think a lot of people now, and, you know, I'm sure the social media, I'm sure has a lot to do with this. Like they, they have expectations of what progress should look like. Um, and I find a lot of like beginners when they're, you know, they're unsatisfied, even if they're doing everything right, right. They're often unsatisfied with the rate of progress which is like that it's a bad sign if that's the case is is a beginner you know like there's because it's only going to get worse from there you know so it's um so i think yeah managing expectations in that population and not necessarily making you know making them shoot lower it's it's getting them to appreciate the rate of progress that they're actually making in in the grand scheme of things you know like five pound, you know, take a power lifter who, you know, adds five pounds to their squat, you know, every block. Like it doesn't seem like much. It's a lot of work in the moment, you know, you're grinding session, you know, session to session. It just does not seem like a lot, but at the end of two years, it's like you do the math. I mean, it'd be what if you're, if a block is like say five weeks, so about a hundred pounds, you know, so it, it, it adds up. Um, and I think for beginners, it can be really tricky, like you said, to, to get them to look like, cause they've never had the experience of being able to look back mm -hmm. and, and see how far they've come. They, they, all they're doing is looking forward, you know? And so it's harder for, for a novice to appreciate or a general population athlete to appreciate the, the small steps forward that they're taking as part of a, a bigger picture. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's tricky. And I, I respect anybody who, you know, works with a lot of general population athletes because, um, it it's one of the more difficult population. It, it's I think the most difficult population to work with because um, there's a lot of it comes down to you know not so much what's physiologically optimal on paper but what is you know behaviorally optimal and I think that that is a good experience for people you know for new coaches is to to work with general population individuals because it, it teaches them how to, to manage an athlete's, you know, emotions to a large degree. Um, and then, you know, as you get more advanced, the, the smaller details matter more and more, but um, yeah, there's a lot of people that like, that kind of cracks me up, power lifters that, you know, micromanage their, their own training, um, you know, very, very, you know, in tune with how everything is integrated within their programming, but they're also, you know, eating less than triple digits of protein per day, you know, and it's like getting, it's just putting the wrong, you know, level of fo amount of focus. Um, so you, you can get a lot out of the basics. Yeah. Like if you master, like very few people master the basics and the people that do end up being in that top, like five percent usually and it's uh yeah it's it just takes patience like you said 
I think that's the, the tricky part about gen pop is uh, you have to find creative ways to help them master the basics. And, and there's, you know, I've, I've had people ask me cause so when I first started this, this phase of trying to gain, it was like, I think we went almost like 14 or 15 weeks before even tweaking the program because I was just progressing and I was gaining weight and I was getting stronger. And it's like, well, why would we change it? And then I have like gym pop where like, well, you change my program every three weeks. And I'm like, my like one, yeah, you know, it, it takes me longer to progress. So I'm going to keep going and I don't get bored quickly. So for some gym yeah. pop, I'm like, I'm purely just changing it. So you stay motivated to get in there and get after it. Yeah. You know, I was having this conversation the other day with um, one of my athletes, I think, for who it was but um is a is a coach like as a young coach i found that i almost had that pressure if someone's paying me money to program for them yeah it's like you you feel like this obligation or that and sometimes they they do expect it Mm -hmm. like that you feel this obligation to tweak something Otherwise, you feel like you're not doing anything. Yeah. You know, you're not serving a purpose. But um, they do. It, it's one of those. It, huh? Same thing with macros. Oh yeah. It's like really. It's like if you're doing a. If if you nailed it, you it shouldn't require a lot of work after that. Mm. Like you, I mean, communication, but, um, yeah, minimal adjustments. And I think some people look to coaches and I think they just have a skewed perception of what's required to, to reach a goal. Um, Cause there's a lot of people that I think they manipulate things too or excessively, but they still make good progress. And so some people see that and think, okay, like I need to, I need to do this, you know, I need to, um, you know, rotate in new accessory movements every single block and, um, you know, change rep ranges every single block when, you know, if things are going well, it's like, you just keep rolling with it. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, like you said, with, with gen pop, it's like, things can be going well, but people can be getting bored with it, which is, it's a tricky scenario. You almost have to figure out creative ways. It's like, as a parent trying to like, figure out a way to like, get your kid to eat vegetables so you start like hiding it and shit (laughs) it's like it's like i'm gonna hide the same program with just like i'll just kind of move these things around to make it look (laughs) yeah but it's really (laughs) you're really doing the same thing yeah um but yeah it's so true it's so true it's funny because i uh i try to tell people you know like when someone's like hey we haven't changed anything it's been eight weeks and i'm like that's a good thing like you're making Mm -hmm. really good progress why would i cut calories or add cardio or do anything if you're continually mm-hmm. making progress or um like you said i've told people like sometimes i tr- like almost trick my clients into think they're doing something different like yeah the squat stays the same but we're changing the reverse lunge to a split squat it's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to them it's something crazy different it, but you know what if that makes you excited to keep going then i'm gonna yeah. do that every few weeks because i want you to keep doing it but um yeah. I love that, man. Uh, I, w- I want to respect your time. We've been, been on here for just about over an hour. I could probably ask you like 20 more questions and have a bunch of different conversations. And I appreciate that um, you actually took every question and kind of went on like four different tangents. And I really yeah. like that actually, because there's, you know, in co- good coaches say the words, it depends so much. And I love when I talk to somebody and you almost can't answer a question with like yeah. a black and white, like, 
this is yeah. the answer. So I appreciate that. And I know the people listening. That's do. good. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I go on these and I know sometimes I, yeah, it's like, as I start thinking of ways to answer it, other things like all these contingencies start yeah. popping into your head. And so it's, it never flows out quite as smooth as you hope. But, and that's, and that's yeah. why it's actually hard for me to write blogs anymore because I end up, I'm like 20,000 words in. I'm like, well, there's so many scenarios that this could go. And I just keep going and going and going. Yeah. But um, no, I love it, man. I think the people listening do too as well. Cause I, I do it quite often. Um, but uh, where can everybody find you uh, website, Instagram, wherever you're located most at? Um, so my website is myojournal, um, myojournal.com. Um, you can find out there's a blog articles there, um, coaching information, um, contact form and everything. And then, uh, Instagram is at BD minor and, uh, yeah, it's probably the best place. Perfect. I'll link both those in the show notes for everybody. To check it out. Um, a lot of good content coming from him. And I would also, I would like even just follow just to see the content he's featured on because that's how I found you and you're on a bunch of things. And like I said, yeah. the hypertrophy summit's coming up. I'm assuming you'll be posting when that's live. And I highly recommend people check that out. Cause it's a lot of really, I was really excited to see that. There's a lot of good speakers there. Um, but man, thank you for taking the time with me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Cody. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, Head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.